This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am speaking to you right now from the Vox Media Podcast Network in snowy New York City. We're doing something a little bit different today. We're doing a megapod about Trump and media and the White House. If you're not interested in that stuff, this may not be the podcast for you, but I bet you will like it. We've got three different guests here, two different segments. First, we're going to talk to Jay Rosen. He's the New York University professor who writes really smart things about the press uh, and politics. He was our single most popular guest last year. We brought him back to talk about uh, the press in the Trump era, 2017, what 2018 will look like. That conversation runs about 45 minutes. Then we talk to CNN's Oliver Darcy and BuzzFeed's Charlie Warzel. These guys also specialize in the media and politics. They specialize in the right-wing media. We had them on last year. They are awesome as well. Um, so you can listen to all of those conversations right now. Before I formally introduce Jay Rosen, I just want to tell you if you like hearing people talk about media technology, we've got an entire two-day event. We're going to do nothing but that. That's Code Media. It's got awesome guests, people who run Facebook and YouTube and SoundCloud, just about every company you care about. Um, they're going to meet us at the Pasea Hotel. You can hear much more about that February 12th and 13th. If you want to come attend that live, look at recode.net. We will see you there. Like I said, I'm here with Jay Rosen, our first ever repeat guest, return guest. That's quite an honor. Uh, you are also our best performing guest, Jay mm -hmm. Rosen. You spoke Many to me. people tell me that. Yeah. <laughs> you spoke uh, just about exactly a year ago, uh -huh. uh, right before the Trump inauguration. It's kind of hard to remember what the climate felt like then. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation. Um, again, this is before the inauguration, so there was all sorts of worry uh, about how the press would behave and would be treated by Trump. Um, we immediately went to the Sean Spicer uh, press conference event, which again is hard right. to recall. Um, this is part of the, the nature of, of life in Trump land, right? Every right. Week. It's a whirlwind. Uh, it's a whirlwind. Um, but like I said, there was uh, you, you sort of laid out what life might be like under Trump for the press, for journalism. Um, and I want to revisit that conversation. I want to just start by playing a clip of that conversation. There will be an a lot to report on, and there will no doubt be spectacular revelations and investigations. Uh, it may be the most fertile time for investigative journalism you know, since Watergate. So that's good. That's good. But that news and those reports will emerge into an environment that is hostile to journalism. And there are political enemies of the press that are gaining traction, and one of them happens to be the president of the United States. So that's the situation. It's not that there's not going to be great stories. There's going to be a lot of great stories. But there's a kind of rejection of them already underway. So, Jay Rosen, NYU professor, uh, proprietor of the Press Think blog, mm. grade yourself. How did, how did your, uh, your predictions come out? At least in, in the, the main thesis there, right? Some spectacular journalism and also bad news overall for the journalism in terms of the overall environment. I think that happened. You think you nailed it? Pretty much, yeah. The spectacular I mean, journalism we can identify, right? Yeah, there's been a lot of great investigations, especially around uh, the Russia connection, but not only there. Uh, and we know a lot about how the White House operates. Um, and certainly we've seen journalist news organizations willing to stand up to the president, um, and that's good. And there has also been a wave of support for serious journalism. People in, paying money people for New York paying Times, money Washington and Post. signing up for subscriptions. And 
I think that's good. Um, there's a there's a wider appreciation that that you have to kind of stand up and defend the press, like Jeff Flake is doing this week, uh, Senator Flake, even though he's a little flaky. Uh, this is a day before Jeff Flake is going to go out and is apparently compared Trump to Stalin. Not directly, in, but metaphorically. In his attacks on yeah. the press, yeah. 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 Um, so there's that. But I, I also think that um, in our conversation a year ago, I, I underestimated the difficulty of coping with the Trump phenomena. Um, so maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, so you laid out all, many of the highs. Um, again, there's it's wound down a bit, but there was that period, especially last spring, where day after day, right around 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, Either the Washington Post or the New York Times, or oftentimes both of them, would come out with some jaw-dropping story. Yeah. Um, again, a lot of this stuff came from actually the White House itself, mm-hmm. which I think surprised a bunch of us, at least initially, once we sort of realized. Eventually, we figured it out when we figured out who was actually in the White House. Um, but there was great enterprise reporting that wasn't coming directly from Steve Bannon or Jared Kushner or Donald Trump himself. Um, there was non-White House reporting that was great as well, right? The New York Times and New Yorker did amazing work on, on Weinstein and the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, all that seems really good. Mm-hmm. Um, explain what you underestimated about the perils. Well, um, for one thing, um, when reporters in the national press get to their desks in the morning, between 30 and 35% of the electorate, or the public, is lost to them before they even log on in the sense that they are part of the Trump base that rejects the press as an institution and increasingly rejects the idea of a common set of facts that apply no matter what your political ideology is. Um, And that um, one-third or so of the public is just not there on the receiving end. They're not available to be persuaded, and they um, not only reject the press, but they are actively hostile to it. So th- nobody knows what to do about that. Now you had a, we knew this in advance. You mm-hmm. said this very thing. Uh, in some way or another, reality seems to have weakened as a constraint in politics. Uh, there's no longer this idea that there are common facts that everybody has to accept just because they're facts. You, can, you should go and either re-listen yeah. to this okay. podcast or you can go check out the transcript. They're both, they're both entertaining. I did well, I think that happened. And it's, yeah, so it's, you, you got that part right. Yeah, and... And it's 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 harder to counter that than we thought. You can't just oppose that by printing great stories. Um, another thing that's going on is that um, the attack on the press is part of a larger attack on everyone who knows what they're talking about, which includes, for example, diplomats in the State Department and civil servants, and experts of all kinds, academics, uh, anybody who can serve as a factual, uh, factual check on power is being undermined. And beyond that, the whole idea that there is truth at all, <laughs> you know, is, is sort of under assault, not just in the United States. And then I think a weirder set of problems became clearer to me as the year wore on, Peter, which is... It's really hard to cover Trump because you can't get the normal distance you have on the president um, because of the way he operates. So, for example, in many ways, Trump is a competing news organization to our news organizations. 
not a story to cover, but somebody who is trying to occupy the spotlight himself. He's producing of. his own media effectively he's, through tweets and whatever he yeah, spots off the camera. He is himself a media producer in competition with other media producers. Um, and that's kind of weird. But even weirder than that is if you take some of the standard tools of journalism and you try to employ them, oftentimes they break. So, for example, interviewing Donald Trump. The whole premise of an interview of a sitting president is that you can, you can find out about their thinking. You can illuminate their policy choices. You can, you can dig a little deeper into what they plan to do. And that assumes that the president has policy ideas and has um, a strategy Right and has a sort of governing intention. Right, that and will, may, right. And normally, you interview a president, and maybe he's not forthcoming. Probably right. he's not forthcoming, right. and he's going to give you a certain kind of answer instead of the one. Exactly. Really thinks, but there's some some internal logic to it and consistency. Yes, and we assess the interview on whether we did or didn't learn more or, or not about his plans and and strategies. Right. With Trump, none of that applies because. In an interview situation, he's just saying what at the moment makes him feel like the best, the biggest, the greatest, the brightest, the richest, the most potent, right? He's just saying whatever comes to his mind as the sort of like the most spectacular boast he can think of. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about his policies. Right. If after the interview you try and follow up and say, is this going to happen or you know, go to the aides and say, how is he going to do that? It, it's They'll either say he didn't them. say it. Yeah, which they is what they they, they often might say do. he didn't say it. They might say it. it, it, it they may just ignore it, right? right. Because and it, at this point, no one even like we had the the thing was it last week? It's all blurring together. Where he's he, he, to counter the charge that he's not competent, he holds a, right. a, a public cabinet meeting and appears to agree to an immigration policy that he doesn't actually agree with. And at the time, everyone said, "Ah, we got him," but. I don't think anyone really thought that no. he thought he was agreeing to that. No, <laughs> but it just shows you how meaningless that situation was, right? Um, and so even if you find out what the president, quote-unquote, intends to do in your interview, it doesn't mean he intends to do it, and, or it, had, it doesn't mean it has any significance at all. And this is because there is actually no separation between the interview situation and a policy reality that you're trying to get at. And I, I find again and again as I try and think through, like, what's it like to cover this president, that the basic separation that allows you to assume that there's an object you're trying to report on is evaporated in the case of this president. So that makes it harder. So through the election, after the election, at the beginning of the administration, up, up until I think recently, there was a lot of – is Donald Trump? What's Donald Trump's getting at? What's his game? Is he? Is it when it comes to his tweets? Is he trying to distract right. us by holding up a shiny object while secretly he does this? And it seems now the consensus, the conventional wisdom is, he's just a guy watching TV. Right. Um, he's like some peop other people I know who are in their seventies who just sort of say things because, like you said, it makes them feel better, or maybe they believe it, maybe they don't. Um, and there isn't really a, a there there. It's almost a being there situation. The, the, the Peter Sellers movie um, in the book. Um, now that we sort of know that, does that help us if we're – okay, well, now we sort of know that he doesn't really mean anything he says. We've, we've, we've got a year of evidence that stacks up behind that. Now can we proceed in a different way? Does that help us as we try to cover the president? Well, it could, except that 
this year has exposed a problem in the national press, which is when it is shown that press conventions and rituals don't make sense in the case of Donald Trump or have been broken in half by him, the press is very reluctant to let go of those conventions and rituals, even though they know <laughs> that they don't work anymore. This is one of your, your really good posts for calendar last year for 2017 about the challenge of normalizing exactly. Donald Trump. So explain that a little more. What, because the, the charge you hear thrown around it means yes. different things to different people. Yeah, and I kind of regret that it's something. a bit of a cliche because I was trying to point out something that I, that I think was not so obvious. But, um, well, a simple example would be um, the press keeps fighting for access. Um, because that's what it does. That's what the White House Press Corps does, right? That's what the White House what you're supposed to do. Association is built for. We want to right? hear what Donald Trump or his representatives have yeah. to say. And the White House Press Corps is very um, tenacious in protecting its place in the White House, like its workspace, as well as rituals like the daily briefing and access to the president, right? But we know now that access to the president, or in the case of the briefing, access to Sarah Sanders and her, is isn't actually informing us. It's it's in many ways it's disinforming us, right? Um, and that ritual is as proven kind of like absurd, and yet the press keeps going at it. So the argument that I made about normalization was everybody who reports on Trump knows five or six things that are devastating but obvious. He doesn't know anything about his policies. He doesn't have strong policy views. His idea of leadership is to humiliate people or threaten to humiliate people. He doesn't care if what he's saying is true. And a couple of other things that are you know, blatant like that. Um, but to and, – and those things have been reported. Those things have come out again and again. And they're and, not reported in code. They're reported oh, in straightforward They're English. reported fairly straightforwardly. However – there's another ethic that White House reporting has, which is to respect the presidency, respect the choice of the American people, um, respect the White House, the institution. And so, as I said, what they have to report conflicts with what they have to respect. And so occasionally they change it into something they can respect, even though the facts don't warrant that. What's so, an example of that? Well, an example would be in the year-end um, roundups that we got from many uh, Washington journalists. Um, you would find, for example, in a roundup of, of uh, his foreign policy that he would be described as having a foreign policy, right, and having co a relatively coherent views about what the United States' role in the world should be because all presidents have foreign policies. But actually he doesn't. <laughs> and it would have been kind of embarrassing almost or startling to describe a year of the presidency in which the president showed actually no command of any foreign policy details and no coherent thought on it. And on the other hand, the reporters kind of know that as well. But when it comes to describing it, they shrink from that a little they bit. They sort of have that formal voice where you have to act as if. Yes. This is, a this is unusual, but it's still in the realm as right. opposed to what you might say at the bar or privately, which is some version of holy shit. Exactly. Um, and by the way, that difference between what the reporter might say at the bar and what you see them saying on the page in the paper the next day, that was the founding insight of Gawker and Nick Denton's right. empire, was why are journalists so much 
better to listen to in a bar than they are to read on the page. So I was going to ask you about this later, but we can jump to it now. Along, This is also the argument Michael Wolff is making about his mm-hmm. book, which is essentially saying, yeah, maybe I got some facts wrong, and basically I'm kind of dismissive of, of facts and you piddlers who worry about whether I got someone's name correct. But I got the story right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what you think about his approach and his response to criticism that many of the facts that he reported are wrong, but he's saying, look, I got the overall narrative right, and I was able to present it in a way that was much more compelling than anyone else has to date, so I'm right. Here's what I think happened. I think Wolf talked his way into the White House by persuading Bannon and others that he wanted to show how unfair the liberal media was being to Donald Trump. And he assumed that Trump had to have a lot more competence and knowledge and savvy and, uh, and style um, than, he, than he discovered when he got there. <laughs> and what he discovered when he got there was a president who didn't know anything and a staff that didn't even respect him. Right. And Do so, you think he thought he was still going to write a largely flattering Trump book? Yes, but it was not only that it was going to be flattering, it was going to be a, a contrarian move right. where where he would deliberately annoy and piss off a, a, a lot of journalists to generate controversy, and that would sell the book. Yep. And that was his plan. Um, but the problem he ran into was there were zero facts that supported that story. So he switched tracks. And then he, what he switched to was, you can't believe how bad it is. Yeah. Um, and I think there is something to the idea that he put it all together in a way that the rest of the press didn't because despite their knowledge, despite their best efforts, they do normalize the presidency. Mm-hmm. This, and they normalize what's going on in the White House. Sometimes in spite of themselves. And because that book doesn't do any of that and is consistent in saying, holy shit, it's as bad as you think and worse, there is a kind of an aha to that that I think produces the success of the book. Now, having said that, it still matters whether the anecdotes are true, whether you can verify what he says in the book, he should be way more concerned with errors and the um, the verification of his tale than he is. But Michael Wolf has always been that way. Anybody who knows him knows he, he doesn't really advocate, care. Right, to play much. devil's advocate or Michael Wolf's advocate, um, if the end result is a truthier picture of Donald Trump than one you've been able to get collectively from the Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, despite all of their earnest work. That would be his sort of dismissive way of describing it. Um, Hasn't he still committed good journalism in the end? Hasn't he committed a public service in the end? In addition to making Michael Wolff It is a public service. Yeah, I think it is a public service. But as John Hersey said in The New Yorker a long time ago, the legend on the license in journalism reads, I didn't make this up, (laughs) you know? And that's what makes it journalism is a concern for verification. And I think... Michael Wolf's concern for verica- verification should be a lot higher than it is. All right, take that, Michael Wolf, as you count your millions. Michael Wolf got in a Twitter fight with me once. Did he? Oh, uh, but I don't know why, because I didn't actually drag him. Um, but then he claimed not to know me, and then I had to remind him on Twitter that he'd invited me out for lunch and tried to hire me, <laughs> which was, I think, my most satisfying Twitter response ever. Um, and that and a cup of coffee buys me a yeah. dollar. 
forgot that metaphor, right? Um, let's go back to, to what we thought a year ago and, and where we think we are now. Um, the reason this podcast did so well in part is because you more or less said we should stop listening to Kellyanne Conway, yeah. the version of that. Um, that, that, that in the, again, you can go back and listen to it, but the, the longer version was um, you don't learn anything by listening to Kellyanne Conway. At the time, that seemed like a very important idea because Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway were coming out and lying. It seems, again, like we've sort of gained some footing on that and the press is no longer as concerned about who represents Trump and Trump says plenty of outlandish stuff on the record all the time. Um, we still have incidents, though, like the one we had a few weeks ago where Stephen Miller went on, Jake Tapper's show yeah. on CNN. It was kind of riveting TV for a couple minutes, two guys yelling at each other. Um, do you think that, that that spectacle of Stephen Miller and Jake Tapper yelling at each other and Tapper accusing Miller of performing for the president and Miller accusing Tapper of being a horrible person, is that a useful is that a good use of CNN's time and energy to put that stuff on? Is that, is that helpful to citizens? Well, what I said about Kellyanne Conway was that you can't make an argument for her appearance on informing the public grounds. There's because no, she doesn't know what Donald Trump actually thinks. Yes, and because when she's done explaining something, you know less, and it's less clear than it was before she got into the act. Yep. And so— her appearances must have some other logic. They don't have an informing the public or journalistic logic, an editorial logic. And I think that was the case with Stephen Miller. There were, if you had followed the, the rise of Stephen Miller and if you had seen his other media appearances and you can contextualize this particular appearance and, and when it came, you knew that the interview was going to blow up. I did. I said it on Twitter. I said, this is going to be wild. You can go back and look it up. Um, but it was an easy prediction to make because um, it was clear that Miller would go on CNN having no intention of um, accepting the good faith premises of a Sunday morning interview. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to answer yeah. it. You may not really answer it, but you're still going to provide right. something in the structure of an answer. Right. And you're going to take the opportunity to put the best face on your policy and you're going to try and – Emphasize the things that you think the it's media a joust, is forgetting. There are rules. It's a jousting, right? Right, and there's, a, and there's a certain there's a certain logic to it. There's also a certain boundaries that are are kept, right? And you just knew that he wasn't going to do that. He was going to instead um, make CNN the enemy of the people, you know, and attack it. And as Jake said, play to an audience of one. And so the question is, why does CNN do that? if they know what is going to happen. And I don't think the logic is editorial. I think the logics are either entertainment, which is sort of what happened, right? The interview blows up and it's, and it's a clip that we can share. Um, and the other logic that I think people underestimate is CNN wants to be able to say we're inviting the administration. They want to be seen as open to the message of the White House, right? They want to think of themselves as we hear from both sides. It's very important to them to maintain that atmosphere of fair-mindedness and both sides uh, get the microphone. And they are committed to that, whether it's working or not, which is another example of a ritual that may have been broken by the Trump 
presidency that they don't want to give up. Tease that up because you seem critical of the idea of, of, of leaving the door open for a, a White House or this White House in particular to come on and, and send a human bomb like Stephen Miller saying, well, we'll, we'll, tr- we'll try it again. You know, come back if you send someone else or we'll try Stephen Miller again because we need to hear from the president. We need to hear from his representatives. That's a generally accepted idea of, of journalism in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you sound like you're about ready to be done with it. Well, I think at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, is that ritual actually returning anything for the public? And um, you have to ask yourself if, if it is strong enough to meet the phenomena. See, I, I think we're – to take a step back for a second, Peter. I think we're engaged in an uncontrolled experiment to find out what happens to a mature democracy when a wholly destructive force – gains control of the White House communication system and the presidency itself. And by wholly destructive, I mean that Trump is not only destructive to a free press and um, a fact-based debate and a public sphere in which we can have a national argument, but to himself, to his own program. So what happens when a wholly destructive force gains control of the White House communication system and, and presents itself to journalism? That's the, as I said, uncontrolled experiment that I think that we are engaged in. And while our journalists know that's happening on one level, I think on another level, they still can't quite face, you know, how dramatic it is. I mean, because Trump is uncontrolled, because he has people around him who can't control him or don't want to control him or want to point him in different directions depending on their, their agenda – I wonder what it would be like if, if you, if, if I think about this a lot, if there was a Donald Trump-like figure with a modicum of control and a modicum yeah. of discipline and thought, well, this is what I really want, and so here's my plan to achieve it over the next couple of years. Um, and if they did send someone instead of a Stephen Miller, but someone just, oh, it would be so easy, right? So I mean, and then and and then the press would say, oh, yes, um, but you would would then say, well, that's 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 less good in some ways, right? In a way, uh, sure. I mean, it would be harder to figure out what's going on. <laughs> you know, there would be there would more be more misdirection plays. I mean, so much of the journalism that's been so gratifying to read, um, and not to diminish it in any way, but it was really coming directly from either Donald Trump or the people directly around him in the White House. And we've sort of known this through the reporting for the last year, and Michael Wolf book spells it out. I mean, they were just calling up various outlets and saying, well, this is what Bannon says, and this yeah. is what Kushner says. And, you know, they're all slanted in varying degrees, but it's, it's riveting stuff. If you, yeah. if you had just a bit more discipline that's, and less of that, they'd be in a different situation. This is why Peter Baker says, hey, this is probably the most transparent White House ever. You know, we, we know everything. Right. And which, again, I think was harder for us to figure out a year ago. Yeah, that's probably so. It's become pretty evident. Yes. Yeah. One of the things you, you recommended the press do is, is listen. Mm. Um, and I want to ask you what you meant by that. One of the things we saw a lot of a lot of press organizations do over the last year said, "Well, we've, we we obviously screwed up, and we we didn't understand the mood of the country." Right. So going out, we're sending people out into America, away from New York, away from Los Angeles. We're going to ask them what they think. Um, I think they did a lot of good journalism in those cases. Um, um, people have some critiques of some of that those forms. There's the the, the Nazi profile in the New York Times. You can. You can list others. Um, what did you think of that effort, and is that what you thought of by when you told people to go listen to the public? Well, I started that recommendation by drawing a distinction b- 
between Troubles and Issues, which was originally struck by C. Wright Mills, the great mid-century sociologist. So what Mills meant is that troubles are the things that bother people in their lives, that they talk about at night over the kitchen table, the things that they are actively worried about. And issues is what the political system does to run elections and and win coalitions and right. And his point was that when issues don't speak to troubles and troubles don't connect to issues, you have a crisis in democracy. So my point was not that that journalists should just go out and listen to Trump voters because they got the election wrong. It was that if journalists could somehow listen to people's troubles in a new and more potent way, then they would be in a position to represent those people better than the political system does when it fashions them into issues. Now, that's a much deeper and more um, ambitious project than let's check in with Trump voters in Pennsylvania and and, uh, West Virginia to see if they still support Donald Trump. Um, And I think we saw a lot of that kind of parachuting into Trump country, which is sort of an anthropological or some people said zoological uh, exercise. Uh, We saw a lot of that. Um, But what I was talking about was was trying to kind of recover authority by understanding the troubles that led to the results in 2016. However, there was one part of that that I didn't anticipate that makes it much harder than I suggested. And this, I think, was brought out by a variety of writers, but most potently by Adam Serwer in The Atlantic in his long piece on race and racism in the 2016 election, which is that a certain portion of the electorate voted the way they voted precisely to express a kind of racialism or racism. And that that is just part of the American electorate. Right. So you listen and, to them and when they yeah. when they tell you something abhorrent, there it is. You know, you and you, you can re, you can you can re, relay that to the rest of the public, but you're not going to you're not going to change it. You know, you know it's, it's not like they're going to give that up. Yeah. So, um I think uh, this whole year from from January 20th of 2016 to today, has been, for me at least, a deeper confrontation with the stubbornness of American racism. I knew it was there, but I think we have to, like, um, face it more clearly than we have. And Adam Silver's piece in The Atlantic really did that for me very, very well. Sometimes when I see a piece that confronts the racism or at least acknowledges that or acknowledges anti-Semitism, right, I'm thinking again of the the New York Times Nazi piece. Uh, I think it was a political piece where they went to a benighted, towns in, in Pennsylvania and yeah. ended with a with a uh, racial slur uh, about the NFL. Um, that story didn't upset people in the way that the Nazi one did. But you'll hear people say, well, just because people have these abhorred views doesn't mean we should we should share them. And we, there's no point in just sharing them. We always known there's racism and anti-Semitism in America. There's nothing new here. And I think, I don't know, I think it's awfully good to share that stuff. And you should be thoughtful about the way you do it so you don't caricature people. But if a big part of the country feels this way. We, we ought to know about that. Yes, but I think when you do that, you you need to return with some insight. As More well. than just like, look at this? Yeah. Okay, that's the distinction. Um, let's move into to present tense. Uh, last week, Facebook announced their 
making very big changes and, and trying to sort of figure out what those changes mean is, is a secondary thing. But they know they're big because they announced them in the New York Times and they had multiple blog posts and they made Mark Zuckerberg available. And the general consensus is they're moving away from news and they're going to be less interested in distributing news. And that seems to be a big pivot from a few years ago when they said they were very interested in news. Um, first of all, what do you think this means for news? Well, it was sort of Facebook's Barbie moment. Remember when Barbie said, math is hard. Mm-hmm. This was sort of, informing people is hard. You know, the public sphere is hard. And they discovered that. So I think it is a kind of a retreat from an ambition they had, which was not to just be a news source, but to, to have a role in the public sphere. Um, One of the metaphors Mark Zuckerberg used to use was we want to be the world's newspaper. Yeah, and they were kind of jealous of the way that Twitter had become the news system, the breaking news system, Um, and they they had ambitions like that. And I think it is proper to see this as a scaling back uh, of those ambitions and also a kind of indifference to the fate of political democracy. Um, They don't want to be blamed for... Um, elections gone wrong and misuse of their platform. So they're, they're trying to um, eliminate that as well. But I think, I think it's almost like a kiss-off. So you, you trace this in large, in, at least in part, to the election and the Russia meddling charges and the general discontent. Well, I think that's have. part of it. I think it's part of it. Um, and it, it, a deeper level is, and I wrote about this in the Washington Post three years ago, um, I, I believe that Facebook has never quite clarified for itself what kind of trust and legitimacy it requires to operate. Um, They seem to think that they can get away with kind of a thin layer of trust and legitimacy. So thin legitimacy is like you have the terms of service box and you check it if you create a Facebook account, right? And it kind of sort of um, signals that you're accepting what they're going to do with you, but you don't really understand right. it. You've never read it. You never read it. It it does have some legal force, right? But it's thin. And I believe Facebook feels that they can get away with thin legitimacy, thin transparency, a thin understanding of users about what they're signing up for, um, a thin connection to um, political democracy, and maybe they need a much thicker contract. And I think this, these events of the last few weeks are a result of an indecision at the heart of the company where they don't really know how much trust we need to place in Facebook. And I, I think they're going to continue to founder. Yeah, I think they're committed most, and I think this has been, I mean, they've, they've gone back and forth in what they've said about how they view their place in the world, but consistently they think that they are a platform. Right, mm-hmm. that the users are doing all the work. The users that used to be the religion. The we're just a platform. We're just a platform. Right. We're just a platform. And by the way, I think they still believe that, and they sort of have made some accommodations to reality in one way or another. And, and, and there's different contours to it. And maybe maybe we'll bid on some sports rights. So does a platform do that? Yeah, right. Um, but uh, I don't think they were ever really interested in being a news organization. No. Um, I think that they thought, and I think that with good intentions, that it would be useful for them to help distribute news because that's one of the things people like to consume. But it wasn't their main goal. Right. And I think a lot of journalism organizations and publishers mistook that as sort of, well, that Facebook's job is to help us distribute our information and, by the way, help us make money. 
Yeah, and, and that was, that was naive. That. Yeah, they should have never believed that. Uh, where do you think that leaves uh, journalism or groups that were using Facebook for distribution or theoretically monetization? I'm not optimistic about using Facebook for monetization. Um, if you can figure out how to get them to um, share your work, that's going to be a good thing. But you, if your business model is at all dependent on Facebook, you're in trouble. I find it hard to believe that anyone who's been thinking about this and running a business would have been surprised by this. Maybe the force of it or the finality. I think people have sort of reached this conclusion mostly on their own over the last couple of years looking at numbers. It was a relationship in trouble for a long time. So it's sort of a a, a finalized divorce in some ways. from And by the way, they're still going to be distributing plenty of news. they, They and Google will continue to be the two dominant ways that people distribute information. Yes, but um, I think what their announcements last week confirmed is that there isn't any future here, right? It's it's not going to be... Don't come to us asking for stuff because we've already made yeah. clear that we're out of that. Right. So if you can use it, great. Right. But we're not going to spend time. Exactly. We're, which, not, we're going to stop taking you guys to dinner and telling you that we want to hear your <laughs> right. concerns. Um, which is why the more I read about it, I tried to read everything I could on it. Because the statements from Facebook itself are incredibly opaque. If you just rely on what they're telling you, you don't understand a thing, which is part of the problem, part of what I meant by thin trust. But the more I read about it, the more I felt ultimately this is going to be good for news in the same way that when you're stuck in a broken relationship, it's ultimately good to be out of it and to realize that this is not your future. I am sort of curious if there's going to be a different center of gravity. I've done this for a long time, so I can remember when distributing news online meant catering to Yahoo. Yep. Uh, AOL before that, but a shorter period than Google. Alta Vista before that. (laughs) But Google for a long time was the dominant way that people thought about packaging news and could you bump up your your relevancy so you were higher in, in, in results and then Facebook replaced it, Google's replaced it. Doesn't seem like there's a thing replacing Facebook. Yeah. So I think we'll be stuck there for a while. Um, Speaking of platforms, um, I'm hoping that in a few minutes you can explain a very complicated idea to me, the blockchain and journalism. I saw that you're affiliated with something called Civil. Mm. Were you in the Uh, board? Not affiliated. I am— Your uh, name was on a press release, no? I'm uh, speaking at an event. Really? That's that's it? All right. I'll I'll Google my my facts. Um, I spent an hour with these guys Uh because I was interested in— I know the the smart take is that you should— not pay attention to Bitcoin and other currency speculation, but if you're a smart person who's interested in technology, take the blockchain very seriously. Mm-hmm. So my question is, what does the blockchain mean for journalism? There's this thing called civil, which is trying to meld the blockchain and journalism. Do you understand what they're doing? Maybe 50%. Okay, I don't feel so bad. What's the 50% you understand? Well, they want to um, create a new way to support journalism. Uh-huh. And instead of raising money through venture capital and getting, um, you know, Vox Media to support us. Um, They want to support new publications by issuing essentially new coins or new currencies that would support those publications, which would give an incentive to um, early supporters, people who believe in the concept and who believe in the journalism, to um, essentially invest in a new publication because if that catches on, they would actually make money. So you have to imagine like the early subscribers and the people who are um, patronizing and talking about this new news source uh, actually have a way to profit from their early support 
um, because they're investing in a currency that would itself grow in value as more publications join that platform. That's the idea of civil as a force in journalism. And so the, it's, the reason that's better than just saying supporting journalism by subscribing or making a donation or paying attention to advertisers is you also get some sort of monetary benefit. You, you put could, money in and get money out somehow? You could, um, you, possibly, if the, uh, the garden that they're trying to create grows. Um, there's another element as well, which is that um, what is currently about to happen to Gawker where – Peter Thiel not only destroyed it but wants to buy it and presumably would take all of its contents offline, that could never happen in blockchain publishing because of the distributed quality of the ledger. Um, and so for highly sensitive journalism that really makes a difference and, and uh, needs to be um, permanently public, um, the blockchain is a very potent technology for that um, because it persists whether or not the company that originally published it. Uh, is, is still around, whether Peter Thiel buys it or not. So there's an element there, too, of, of sort of the permanency of the public record. Um, blockchain provides a way to assure that that is genuinely different than uh, private companies publishing stuff on the internet. The Peter Thiel case aside, that seems like an outlier. Um, I get that rich people trying to sue People out of, out of out of existence is not necessarily an outlier in 2018 anymore. Um, but the the we need a new mechanism to support journalism. Um, I'm awfully skeptical that that, that get, requiring people to figure out a new currency, invest in a new currency, as opposed to using their credit card hmm. or pennies, is 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 worthwhile. But you seem to think there might be some merit there. I don't know. I I, I think skepticism is entirely warranted. Um, I think skepticism about every single model for supporting serious journalism is warranted. You know, certainly, the ad model has shown itself to be corrosive and, and uh, almost unaffordable. Um, subscriptions are great, but there's a problem with the subscription-supported um, news like the information by Jessica Lesson, which I think is really good and very interesting. Agreed. $450 a year, I think, um, which uh, uh, only a fraction of the market can afford that, right? So it's great journalism, but it's part of the value of it is that other people don't have that information. Yes. Which is the, kind of the opposite. You're buying information you can trade on or yeah. help you in some way. Which is sort of the opposite of informing the public. It's the, that's the same problem with the political pro newsletter that costs several thousand dollars yeah. a year. It's great information. It's produced by journalists. It's a working model. It's, it, uh, it's successful. But it's not journalism for the public. And it's why, and I come back to this a bunch of times, why I have yet to see a model of any ad-supported subscription journalism that works for small, medium-sized papers and communities where they've seen those papers whittled away. There is, I've yet to see a single solution other than a rich person supporting it. I works. agree with you. It's an unsolved problem. Let's, can we end on an, on an up note for 2018? What are you optimistic about this year? <laughs> I'm optimistic about a project that I'm involved in, which is bringing uh, day correspondent from the Netherlands to the United States. It's the world's most successful member-supported news organization. What's different about it compared to subscription is that it doesn't have a hard paywall because the members who believe in the cause, they believe in the work being done, want it to spread to non-members. Um, How is that different than other nonprofit journalist models we've seen? I'm thinking of uh, ProPublica. 
the uh, U.S. It's not fundamentally party. different. ProPublica started out being funded mainly by large donors um, who um, lent thousands of dollars at a pop. To, uh, but now they are going in a membership direction uh, as well. So the correspondent not only has members to support it, has a unique journalism model in which it has 21 full-time correspondents who choose their own beats and define their own reporting projects. And in return for this extraordinary freedom, are required to spend 40 to 50 percent of their time in interacting with readers and members and treating them as a knowledge community. So it's also betting big on a kind of a open source dream of journalism that's been around for a long time. Um, so they um, they have 60,000 members in the Netherlands. They have an editorial budget in the millions. They have 21 full-time correspondents. They're growing. And they're coming to the and U.S. And they're coming to the U.S. And so I'm excited about helping them do that. If I want to uh, read, if I want to participate, how do I do that? Stay tuned to my Twitter feed. We haven't launched the membership campaign yet, but that will happen in 2018. I will stay tuned to your Twitter feed, Jay Rosen. I will read your blog, PressThink, easy to find. Um, I'm sure I will find you in many other media outlets as well. Thank you for coming by again. We'll see you in a year. Can we make a deal? Mm, yeah. Done Thanks, deal. Peter. Thanks again for coming back, Jay. Another great conversation. It may sound like I'm ending the podcast, but I am not ending the podcast. There's more. First, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And then we'll be back with CNN's Oliver Darcy and BuzzFeed's Charlie Warzel. See you in a minute. Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe, the fastest growing home security company in the nation. They're now protecting more than 2 million people. And here's some exciting news Simply Safe has just released a brand new home security system, completely rebuilt and redesigned. They've added new safeguards to protect against power outages, down Wi Fi, cut landlines, bats, that's scary, hammers, everything in between. The all new Simply Safe was redesigned to be practically invisible. With powerful sensors so small, you'll hardly notice them. But you know who will notice them? Intruders. Simply Safe has spent years building the system. They've added so much, but you still get the same fair and honest price they've always offered. That's 24-7 protection for only $15 a month. And there is zero contract. It's smaller, faster, and stronger than anything they've built before, and supply is very limited. To get yours now, go to simplysafe.com slash media now to order. That's S-I-M-P-L-I safe.com slash media to protect your home and family today. Simplysafe.com slash media. Hello. Back at Recode Media, you have probably listened to me talk to Jay Rosen for about 45 minutes about Trump and the White House and press. We're going to have more of that conversation with Oliver Darcy from CNN and Charlie Warzel from BuzzFeed. You probably remember these guys from last summer when they came here to talk. And while they were talking, Steve Bannon was pushed out of the White House. He resigned from the White House. Um, what's going to happen while we're talking today, guys? Well, he already got pushed out of Breitbart. Right. So That's Oliver. Yeah. Now I'm not sure if there's anything left for him to uh, get ousted from. Let's predict what will happen during our <laughs> half hour to 45 hour. minutes of conversation. <laughs> you know, he is, I think, still living at the Breitbart Embassy or what they call the Breitbart Embassy, so it's possible maybe... It's incredibly awkward. You know, it's is incredibly he still awkward. the eviction live? notice is coming later? Oh. Here, let's do the formal... Well, I did, I did a, a semi-formal introduction. Uh, you guys both are here because you're both great. Uh, you both sort of focus on right-wing media, um, political media in general for Oliver, I guess. Um, but I'll, you guys... I bring you in to help explain how a good chunk of the country sees the world, which is different than people in the reality-based conversation often see the world. Um, Charlie used to, used to have a newsletter 
that focused just on this, right? What was it called? It's called Infowarzel. Infowarzel. Uh, nice little Alex Jones. I wanted to call fun. it Notes from the Underworld, but that's not it. It's uh, it's coming back uh, through through BuzzFeed actually uh, very soon. So we're it used to be this, like a fun little side project where I'd waste. Uh, two-thirds of a Sunday doing it, and now it's going to be part of my job a little bit. So good. hopefully we're going to grow that. It's going to be a little bit more about, like, the general info war, so, like, the tech platforms as well as, like, you know, the rise of pro-Trump media, et cetera. So premise is if you, listen, if you listen to Recode Media, if you read the New York Times, if you watch CNN, MSNBC, uh, lots of mainstream news outlets, um, you have one view of the world, and if you watch Fox News and or read Breitbart or listen – consume InfoWars, and lots of other tertiary sites uh, and Twitter feeds, you view the world entirely different, and you guys sort of specialize in watching the way that world works. Fair? Good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, the interview's over. Okay. Wow. See you later. Um, we, started, we started talking about Bannon. Uh, let's, let's go back to Bannon. Um, last time we talked, he was former white—he was in the White House, then he was out of the White House, then he was back at Breitbart, running Breitbart. Um, we all know he's been kicked out of Breitbart since then. Um, he spent the last day testifying in front of Congress. I think he's back hours. this morning. Is he back? I think so. Isn't he's been subpoenaed. He was subpoenaed. So I think I think I saw some tweets about him milling around the Capitol. So we can talk about what's going to happen to Bannon, but let's we'll start with Breitbart. So without Bannon, what happens to Breitbart? My sense of, of Breitbart was that it was very important in the election. Uh, and then when he went to the White House, became a little less important because he was spending his time focused on that. He went back to Breitbart last fall. It's, I got my hands on the weapons now. Is that, was that the quote? Right. He's going to rev it up. He's going to rev it up. Right. Did, it, did it become more <laughs> important once he came back? I think people focused on it more once he came back. Particularly, because it was his publication. Yeah, and because he was using it to directly oppose the president, right? Like in Alabama, he endorsed a Senate candidate that was opposite of uh, what President Trump had endorsed. Um, and, and, sent, and sent his team out, right? To, right. to work on behalf of Moore, basically. And right. they were the ones who got ahead of the Washington Post story. They were very aggressive reporting that. It and was an extension of him. At that point, it's yeah, and I think Breitbart for our last few years has been an extension of, of right. Bannon. So it's going to be interesting now that he's gone whether uh, they carry the, his torch forward. Essentially, uh, I think if you talk to people close to him, they'll say that you know the core team is still in place. Alex Marlowe is still editor in chief. Matthew Boyle is still the Washington editor, and so those guys are pretty familiar with the kind of coverage that he would have wanted, and it's, they're, they're on the same page. So they, they'll, those people will say that the, the websites direction won't change. But I think it's hard for them maybe to generate just the amount of interest in Breitbart, and that's what gave them a lot of influence. And people pay attention to it because they saw it at first as a window into the Trump campaign, then the window into the White House, and then it was interesting because the chief strategist was opposing the president's agenda or nominations, uh, endorsements uh, in Alabama. Now it's like, why do we care about Breitbart again? And in terms of reach, in terms of influence, um, I think numerically, right, the, the, the visitors had gone down over the last year. Was something that worked sort of better as an opposition publication than it did once the party was in power? That's kind of always the case, too, with the, like, you know, like, be, yeah. like, yeah, like the, you know, the Huffington Post sort of being a, a reaction to the, the Bush White House. And, and, you know, that's, it's hard, it's hard to be 
in power as an adversarial media organization, I think. And, and Bannon didn't found Breitbart, right? He took it over once Andrew Breitbart, Breitbart had died. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was closely aligned with him. So, and, and Oliver, you just said, you, everyone there seems like they're still philosophically aligned with what he did. Right. How, much, how much of sort of the, the energy of the site comes from him and, and direction came from him as opposed to people who sort of understand politically what he would like to do Versus uh, write this story, punch this up this way. Right. That was He wasn't really doing the managing, I suppose, day-to-day from my understanding. That comes from Alex Marlowe who kind of executes or was executing Bannon's vision. But Bannon was certainly the eccentric character that brought a lot of uh, energy, like you said, to Breitbart and drew a lot of attention and was able to leverage that into influence. And that gave the publication influence at large. And, and I mean, this is the first time, actually, if you, if you look at the history of Breitbart, where an eccentric guy like Manon's not the chairman or head of it. Um, Andrew Breitbart obviously was a big bomb thrower as well before he passed and gave the and then Bannon took over the reins. Um, so it's, I don't know what's going to happen. It's really hard for me to imagine that a, a publication as uh, edgy as Breitbart doesn't have someone like Bannon or, or Andrew um, heading it up. The the way that I thought about it is the way people described working for Bannon was always like using these these kind of like hackneyed like weird I don't know metaphors or whatever. But you know like we slam the pedal to the floor and then yeah. when the when the engine jumps out of the car we keep going and you know like like. People just talked about it. I think he was, you know, there's been lots of reports in different places being, like, emotionally manipulative, being, like, really hard on people. And uh, and I, I just and think— And also a charismatic leader, right? Yeah, That's why I, people I, stay I at think, a place like that. I just that. think it, like, upped the—yeah, the the emotion, the, the level of drive and dedication. I think people thought when they wrote— a controversial story for him that they were doing something worthwhile. I don't know if anyone's going to feel that way about you know writing it for for Marla. I mean, it, it strikes me that the that sort of the two models we're comfortable with, or we have a, a handle on in media today, are there is the publication or show, or whatever, or or network that is the represents. You can sort of see a single charismatic leader sort of powering it through, right? Fox was was Roger Ailes in large degree. Uh, very small websites are, are based around a single founder. And then you have institutions, right, like the Times and the Post, and it's bigger than any one person. It seems like Breitbart and also a lot of the other right-wing media are, are somewhere in the middle where without Bannon, you can't really identify the person who's the force behind the Daily Caller or IJR or now I think most people would be very hard-pressed to identify who runs Breitbart outside of you two. Right. And the thing that's important about Breitbart too is that for everyone there, the mentality is like we were at war and Bannon was our general. And now the general's gone. And it's just, it's yeah, someone's technically filling his place. But without Bannon, it's like who's going to drive them to march forward and, and go into battle and and uh, spill blood, like they would say. You know, it's just, it's just hard. It's really difficult to imagine um, Marlowe filling those shoes just because it's not his style of leadership, um, from my understanding. So I'd be interested. They said on the call, what was it, when he— the day after he left, um, they had an internal call, and they said that they weren't immediately replacing um, Bannon with someone. But I'd be interested to know if, like, down the line, if someone, they bring some outsider in to fill a spot. I like the, that Oliver is, is hanging out in the—you uh, seemingly are hanging out in the internal Slack rooms at Breitbart. Like, every one of your stories has a, has a screen cap of some Slack conversation. Um, are they unhappy about the fact that, that you were sort of embedded there, or are they cool with it? I think they're particularly unhappy. Yeah? But I, 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 yeah, I mean, from— 
Yeah, they're they're are they not, hunting the mole. They're not happy. Uh, I I I have been told that you know uh, when Bannon came back, he did try finding who um, he tr- the employees who were talking to me, but you know that's not I, going to be easy, and I, and probably he learned. Uh, not going to be effective. If we were it. live streaming at the Cheshire Cat Green, you've got would be great to, to show. <laughs> it is a bit of a shitting grin. Um, the, the one thing that I think is really interesting about Breitbart is I speaking to a lot of people in the other realms of the pro-Trump media, especially the people who are like big on Twitter. Um, they sort of, I, I think they've been disappointed in Breitbart basically since the election. Um, not, just, not, fire not just enough? for the, yeah, but also not just for the positions, but just for, if you go through and you look, you know, the, at the copy of a Breitbart article, most of the time, it's incendiary headline and then kind of straight copy. Like sometimes, you know, it's almost like AP style, just like yeah. very basic. Uh, it has, you know, a slant and a, and a slant. bias. Yeah. But it's, but it's like we associate Breitbart and so much of what gets put out into the world is like they threw another bomb. You know, like a lot of, a lot of the content on the website is, is very like standard. And I, there was a lot of people who have been really – when Bannon came back to go to war, they were like, you know, where are these like – where are the periscopes? Where are the live streams? Where are you like really mixing it up in these places where so many Trump supporters who are online actually live? And so I think it's going to be interesting to see – do they go more down that path? Do they try to like meet those people on on the internet, or you know, do they just kind of stay and do their conventional thing and and you know, plead out the kind of wilder voices on the side who go someplace else and become like a right leaning centrist kind of you know the hill, but for you know. I don't know. And I think even by Breitbart standards, they've been kind of a disappointment since Trump came in the White House where they were before talking about being the website of record, you know, and having all this access and maybe breaking some stories and because they knew everyone in the White House. And instead, they I mean, I can't remember the last time Breitbart broke news. I guess it was when they scooped the Washington Post on their own story, but that was I don't because, think called a scoop. Yeah, it wasn't right? really a scoop. Just saying just this, like pre- this newspaper is reporting this story. Exactly. Fine news story, I think, probably. Right. And they, they clearly seem to have, you know, got it from the Roy Moore camp. Uh-huh. Uh, so, like, they don't break news. And I think that's sort of disappointing to a lot of people who are looking to go to Breitbart and and get things that, you know, from them, but about the Trump administration and the workings maybe, whereas they have to instead rely on the New York Times. Yeah, say what you will about, like, a, like a James O'Keefe type character, but, like, he's out there, like, putting, even if it's ill-gotten or strangely, you know, uh, procured, that's like new information. There's new stuff. It's incendiary. It's shocking. It's not just like a really wild tweet or a really, you know, bad headline image with a, you know, catchy headline. Good segue, Charlie. Thanks. Um, let's talk about James O'Keefe and then broadly the the the, the ca- other cast of characters besides Bannon, right? There aren't many that people could identify. I think one of the interesting things we talked about this last time as well is that there isn't really a sort of top-down direction for the, for the right-wing media. Um, Fox News is important. Drudge is important. But a lot of the stuff is bubbling up from the Twitter sphere. Um, James O'Keefe is his own category. So he is whom? He is who? He who is he? Is, uh, Oliver, please correct me um, if I'm wrong. Um, a far-right activist slash journalist People call him a provocateur. Been around for a bit. Been around for a, a, Pre, predates a while. Predates Trump Bannon. Yeah. Um, 
And is sort of best known for these undercover exposés on, you know, ex either government organization, but basically since uh, Trump, uh, he's been aiming his sights on the media. He would go after, during the Obama administration, they would send him undercover to uh, Planned Parenthood. Yeah, to to, to different organizations. What was reportedly supposed to be embarrassing for ACORN or Planned Parenthood. there were a couple of Obama era uh, appointees. He basically got sort of kicked out, mm-hmm. um, and the, the notion was he would have undercover footage that was, in theory, damning. Right, and then it, usually is like really, really misleading. Yes, it's often. Uh, I mean, sometimes he does sort of like hit the mark, sort of, especially for his audience. But a lot of times, it's uh, it's really sort of. Uh, like, it'd be like a kernel of truth, but it's grossly misrepresented, and, and like, and he tries making these large points based on something like some low-level employee told him, and he's like, "Well, that characterizes the whole company." Right. So he seems right. has he ascended recently again, or or are there are a handful of stories people are paying attention to. Why is he back on the radar? He's been sort of embraced by this like pro-Trump internet crowd for sure. He was at the. Uh, the night before inauguration, he was at the Deplora Ball, which is like the gathering right. of the pro-Trump media people. He gave this really impassioned speech where, you know, he said the, um, he called, you know, the mainstream media, the American Pravda, and said, you know, I'm going after it. I have moles in every newsroom. Like, we're, we're going to do this. It's going to be this big expose. And throughout the year, he's, you know, set his sights on the New York Times, the Washington Post, recently Twitter, um, and to some, with he was the one who tried to set up the post, right? Correct, and got totally sent, sent someone out to sort of get the post reporters to confess to various left wing conspiracies. Instead, the the post ended up reporting on on him work. and and basically showing how you know he has this network of people who you know misrepresent themselves and uh, you know either as romantic interests or as you know. Uh, like people trying to get their kids jobs or something like that. And a lot of times like sort of like sad cases to very manipulative to try to win favor with these people, get them in an emotionally unguarded moment. And to, and then they'll ask like, and, do you guys really hate Trump? And then, you know, hopefully the Washington Post or whoever media reporter will say, absolutely, it's a war. And, you know, we're, like they want them to right. be Bannon-esque. But most of the time, these people are just sort of like, yeah, you know, we have an opinion section and we have a <laughs> hard news section. And it's They not- don't take off the mask. Yeah. Uh, and then recently went after Twitter. Yes. And this was a story that I only know really because I follow you guys and I happened to go to Drudge one day. It was the lead story on Drudge was the James O'Keefe Twitter expose. And outside of that world, again, this is what's, why, what you guys cover is so fascinating, didn't hear a peep about it. It, it was really interesting. There was a lot of news one day. It was abandoned had been ousted and there was some other stuff going on, I think, with the Russia investigation. And on mainstream media, I mean, no one was talking about this Twitter thing. But if you went to right, uh, right-wing media outlets like Drudge, um, it was the main banner. Breitbart was the main banner. If you went to the Gateway Pundit, they were going all out on this. Hannity was tweeting out links. The premise of the story was Twitter is actively trying to suppress the right wing, and they've got an active anti-Trump. Essentially, that Twitter censoring conservatives. And, that's, I mean, and, and Twitter obviously disputed the central theme of uh, the, one of the videos that O'Keefe released, but that obviously didn't stop it from just— going throughout this right-wing media. I, I do think one interesting point, though, is O'Keefe used to get a lot more play, like, in mainstream media. And he even complains about this in his book, where Fox News, like the news division, is not 
really being friendly to him anymore and won't have him on. Um, and, and he still has allies like Sean Hannity, but the news division on Fox won't even really touch James O'Keefe videos. And like over the weekend, it was really sad. He seemed like desperate for attention where he was tagging news anchors like, look at my video, look at my video. What's Why aren't the you shift there? Is that, is that just part of the overall change in Fox sort of post-Ales? Well, I think it's an overall like realization that James O'Keefe often misrepresents things. But that or, doesn't usually prevent Fox from from. from you know, it's not going to prevent coverage. Sean Hannity, but it might prevent someone like uh, you know Brett Barra uh-huh. or Bill Hammer on America's Newsroom or those guys from touching the video. Or I, I, I have no idea, but maybe there was some sort of like we don't touch these videos unless we've verified them ourselves. And I think Brett Barra actually even tweeted that. Uh, we we're looking into this, you know, but they're not going to just take an O'Keefe video now and blow it up. It's a pretty good um, like way to think about these two sets of sort of like the mainstream conservative or right media and then the far right online like groups. They don't intersect that much. Like Hannity is someone who will sort of you know throw that olive branch or grab the grab the thing that the Gateway Pundit's talking about or you know that. Uh, you know, Mike Cernovich retweeted than a lot of people. Like, he's one of those people that that is a crossover. But I don't know if it has to do with, like, a real animosity or anything or sort of a worry that maybe, you know, these, like, Twitter pundits are kind of, you know, stealing a little bit of their uh, of their spotlight. On the outside, it seems like they, they don't work in synchronicity, but it seems like stuff goes back and forth all the time, right? If it bubbles up. Uh, in Twitter, eventually, it's going to get to Hannity or someone else like that. If there's yeah, traction, but, yeah, we, and we talked about like that last time, stuff. I think. But I, I think there's less of that. That like membrane isn't you know yeah. as uh, permeable Good as, as we think. The, the back to O'Keefe. I mean, one of the reasons that his stuff gets the traction it does, whenever it does get traction, is there's some thread there that is truthful or in the sphere. Um, so with Twitter, for instance, I mean, clearly most people who work at Twitter are not Trump fans. You did have the guy who who kicked Trump off Twitter for a minute or yeah. two, and then broadly, right, all of the big platforms—Twitter, Facebook, YouTube—are um, spending time grappling with the fact that extremists across the board, not necessarily right wing, are manipulating the platforms to their own ends, um, and are trying. And the, traditionally, they just wanted to be sort of hands off. The community uploads stuff to us. We're just a platform. We don't touch it. And they're all, to varying degrees, saying, "All right, we're going to ha- assert a bit more control, one way or another, about." Who gets to use our stuff and how they use it? So in Twitter's case, that's been they've kicked off people like Milo. Um, Facebook, we saw last week, said we're just going to have less news overall because it's kind of messy. Um, people are unhappy when they read it. Um, YouTube yesterday said we're going to kick off sort of the most sort of extreme tier of – or the least, the least popular people on of YouTube. Course. We're going to kick them off. Um, and and have taken various steps to kick. And again, they're talking about both right wing folks, but also you know, uh, ISIS, all, all manner mm-hmm. of, of extremists. Um, how does the right wing sphere, we should find a better word for that, view what the platforms are doing? Do they view it as an attack on them specifically, and and how are they thinking about how to use technology? There's a whole, from what I can see, uh, it sort of this is this is a a fundamental sort of um, soapbox that that the, the the far right gets on and so, and sometimes I think you know there there is a bit of a point they have a bit of a point because sometimes these tech platforms try to make it seem like we're completely and totally inclusive and 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 embrace that idea of, of free speech 
when you know they really they don't have to be they're they're private companies they uh, they need to have these standards and they're and they're kind of coming to grapple with that. Uh, I think that there's this real problem because the they're make the far right is making enemies of all these tech platforms and they are the reason why in so many ways that they, they exist. Like so you're complaining about Twitter on Twitter. Yeah, and and they're. I mean, it's proof of just how vital this is to them, especially something like Twitter. I mean, Facebook is obviously the best for reach. YouTube is is a very good platform, especially for sort of the lesser known people. But I think we we might have talked about this a little last time. But like Twitter is the the crossover. It is the way that somebody who is you know th- throwing bombs, quote unquote, can get in front of you know my Twitter feed or Oliver's Twitter feed or any reporter at the New York Times and, you know, have that come out into the world. And I was surprised when uh, you guys told me that when Twitter banned Milo, it had been uh, been a real problem for him. And then since then, I've been sort of watching it. And it seems really his, his profile has gone way down since he's been kicked off. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's trying to launch, like, this show right now, but can't imagine that being extremely successful. When you get kicked off Twitter, you're sort of exiled from public. And it's really difficult now in his faraway land to reach the people he wants to reach. And he, he's he's someone I, I think that like a lot of people want to consume or watch what he's doing for free. Like he's a very interesting person. When I, I know when I write about him or when like the traffic, like he does good traffic. But I don't think he's someone that like people want his premium content. But I think at some point now, this like when I see Milo content, it's usually people reading Milo content and kind of making fun of him. It's I think his stick of like calling Trump daddy or um, Uncle Steve when he refers to Bannon is sort of old, and I can't imagine him. Like, how long can someone be entertained by that? In, in, in the election, after the election, sort of the narrative was, look how various people, whether it's Russians, whether it's the alt-right, some combination of the two bots, have sort of swarmed Twitter, taken over Twitter, figured out social media. They've, they've figured out how to manipulate these platforms. Um, have the platforms asserted control? Have they taken some of that back? Have they made it harder for people to, to, to leverage the platform to their own end? I think so a little. I mean, I... Uh, basically, like right after we spoke the last time on this podcast, I, I wrote, like, I looked at sort of the 2017 and, and stories that I wrote, and I kind of stopped writing about the. And Oliver and I have had this discussion sort of in private that, like, the, the pro Trump media, like, storylines that were just, you know, you could just, like, open up Twitter and there were 10 stories there for you to just grab and yeah. write and dissect and analyze, whatever. That kind of in like early September, there was like that string of hurricanes and natural disasters. And then after that, like the story, at least in, in my world, shifted so much more to the platforms themselves. And these were like, like look what happened over the past nine months with the pro-Trump media after Trump's inauguration and all that happened in the election. And then it sort of became that last quarter of 2017 and still now, I think, like one of the really fascinating stories, like... Okay, so the platforms they were conducting this war on, what, you know, how did this happen? Are are they trying to grapple with it? To what extent do they really care? And I think that, like, I think that that story is still being teased out. But they've, I feel like talking to people at some of the big tech platforms, they've tried to assert more control and sort of show their hand and kick people off and things like that. 
But it's unclear if sort of, you know, a bit of the damage is already done. Like, you can kick as many people off Twitter, but there's, like, another group of people who learned from them who are, like, kind of coming up through the ranks. And maybe, you know, this time will be a little less So it is, there is a spy versus spy whack-a-mole element to it. It's the, Twitter isn't going to be able to expunge the right wing, obviously. Yeah, I don't think it wants to. Right. But I think, like, you know, you have Twitter's going to kick off Nazis. Okay. But then, like, what about the you know, the Richard Spencer, white nationalist, identitarian people who sort of, you know, uh, disguise it in, well, we're a think tank about this. And then the people who've learned from him about how to make, you know, these controversial ideas palatable or to keep them within bounds. And it's not just like swastika Twitter avatars. So I, I, it's same thing on YouTube, you know, people coming up and starting these pseudo-intellectual podcasts that really, you know, the, the message is, uh, one of, you know, anti-Semitism. And it's like these people are getting better at this at the same time. And sort of the past, I don't know, 2014 to now has shown that, like, you can make a career out of being a person like this, you know, uh, of being like a political firebrand who's loose with the truth. Um, and I think that that's attracted a whole read generation big, of new people. Book. Right. One of the things we talked about last time was was sort of a Trump's interaction with this world and how aware he was and you know does he is he, is he reading this stuff? People printing it out for him. The narrative over the last few months has been no Trump's not reading anything. Trump doesn't read right. That's the Michael Wolf at the extreme. Like he's semi literate, um, but it seems quite clear that 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 he's not wading through Twitter right. Um, it also seems pretty clear he's probably not reading Breitbart or just about anything. He's mostly watching Fox News. Um, and, and there's been some pretty good analysis saying, you know, he's almost always responding to Fox News when he tweets. Uh, today he said, watch Eric Trump. Yeah, he's you get like now. better updates about Fox and Friends from the president's yeah. Twitter feed from like, than the Fox News Twitter feed, which is – think about that for a second. Yeah. So given, given that it's become <laughs> clearer that, that the president is almost entirely unaware of the right wing Twitter, like he uses he he views Twitter as his megaphone, I think correctly, but is unaware that people are sort of publishing stuff. At him, um, does that affect how how the rightist sphere uh, <laughs> views him or what they're doing? They're obviously psyched if he get if they get a retweet from him, but it's presumably his social media guy slash golf caddy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it, it could be him too. Though. I mean, he did, he, he does retweet them, but um, I think what's sort of interesting and back to like why maybe the pro Trump media got kind of it's not getting as much coverage as it was uh, is that. Well, initially they were interesting because they're new to the new to the game, but now they've sort of they're not adding anything new. And like you said, the president is primarily watching Fox. So I think the story's actually shifted back to some of the bigger um, fish, and Fox News happens to be the biggest one. So people are like me at least are writing a lot more about Fox. Right, the president's and, focused on Fox. Right, we and, should all be focused on Fox. Right, and that's not to say that the the other guys are unimportant because a lot of Fox stuff does come from them, but. I don't know. It seems that – correct me if I'm wrong. Like a lot of these conspiracy theories are – it seems like less of them are coming from. I, I don't know. I, I could be reading this wrong. But it, like the pro-Trump Twitter feed, I used to see a direct um, channel from that to the, the president or to Fox. And you it seems trace, like less of it line, is happening. Yeah. Um, I don't know. They, they do still get stuff from the Gateway Pundit and whatnot. But like I'm not seeing – I haven't seen like the last time Cernovich got something from his Twitter feed to to Fox. Am I wrong on that? I think I, well, I think one of the things is there's been sort of a revolve. The revolving door of the White House has kind of kicked out some of the people 
who the you know the pro Trump Twitter groups had as sources. Right, the Bannon, um, the Gorkas. The, yeah, some of the National Security Council folks who it's been pretty much reported that they were you know talking to a lot of these. Mike uh, Flynn's kid. Right, um, and so I think you're I think you're totally right with that, and I and I, having spoken to some of the pro-Trump internet folks, um, I think there's also, there's like a bit of a, I think, disappointment in Trump. Like there was sort of like a a, a, tr- a long trial period of like, okay, we're going to see what this guy's going to do. Like he's going to build this wall. This is going to be, you know, epic or whatever. And and then it kind of didn't happen. And he's sort of, you know, a very standard, you know, at least letting a Republican Congress sort of dictate what the legislation is going to be. And it's like, oh, okay, so this is kind of boring. This is kind of establishment. Right, again, clear that he's not very interested in policy slash not interested in policy And at not all. interested, like you just said, in them. You know, he's not like saying, great Breitbart story. You know, he's like he's interested in the, like, you know, establishment conservative media mothership. Right. And, and he's interested in Fox and Friends. He's also interested in the New York Times and conventional media. Right. And by the way, Bannon— was very happy to talk to the Times. Mm-hmm. Did a did a long piece in Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. Talked to Michael Wolf, who in many ways is very establishment. Um, a lot of attention paid on traditional media and traditional outlets. Um, and I wonder if any of that sort of sunk sunk into the the right wing. I I think they're a little frustrated brain. with that. And I think that also there's I don't know if they're you know just full of crap when they tell me this, but there's this sort of, you know, we're looking at 2018. We're looking at the midterms. We're also looking at, you know, who's after Trump? You know, who's who's like really our guy? Like, who's the guy who's in the chat rooms? Who's the, you know, and unfortunately, the the one guy who sort of looked to be the most like that, uh, Paul Nealon from who's challenging Paul Ryan in Wisconsin is just sort of like proved to be like a pro, like a proto-Nazi. <laughs> I mean, he's just... Um, He's like f- ex- expressing incredibly anti-Semitic views, but like I think they're looking for somebody who is like of the internet, of their world, who's going to be you know a real player for them in in either Congress or in the White House someday, and who will you know be their actual champion rather than Trump, who sort of sort of talk the talk but isn't walking the walk. And it seems Steve Bannon uh, thought maybe at one point that that could have been him, right? Like he was definitely familiar with these uh, internet groups and— There are various stories I, suggesting that Bannon himself might run for something. Right. So the Vanity Fair story came out that basically raised the speculation. And then a couple people told me that uh, Matthew Boyle, who's one of uh, Bannon's top deputies— uh, was telling people that yeah, Bannon's th- mulling a run for president in 2020 if Trump doesn't doesn't run. So I think maybe Bannon thought he could be this guy, and then it became very clear that no, the Trump audience is really Trump's fan base; it's not anyone else's. And Steve Bannon, uh, while they liked him when he was close with Trump, they are perfectly willing to cut ties and, and take Trump's side. Again, one of the reasons I love talking to you guys is because you read the stuff so I don't have to. So so tell me what's in, in the, the – what's can we, can we coin a better phrase today? Boy, I don't know. It's dangerous. In the right-wing media sphere um, that I'm not <laughs> seeing, right? So my Twitter feed is full of uh, girther stories about Trump's height and weight. Oh. Right. The, the the shorthand is that he says he's six foot three and two hundred and thirty nine pounds, and everyone says, No, there's no way he's fatter than that. Um 
there's still a <laughs> shithole. Really the <laughs> there's still a shithole, shit house conversation going on, uh, and then and remarkably, the the Russia stuff seems to have really faded. But um, in the in the version of the world that you guys look at, what are the top stories today? We're taping this on a Wednesday, the seventeenth. I haven't really spent time going through it because I was on the way over here. But yeah, yeah, no, uh, Twitter has been, this James O'Keefe thing has been... Still going. uh, Yeah, it's been one of the top stories. That is still an animating story. This is now days after the fact. Because he's been releasing video after video, so it's been kind of pushing him back to the top. Like it's been... And again, no hint of this in anything in mainstream media. Is Fox covering this as a story? I think Hannity's covered on radio. I can't say whether Fox has covered it. It's a story that basically does not exist unless you read the right wing. Right. If you're on Twitter uh, and if you're reading the Drudge Report and sites like that, it's a big story. Fox has covered it online. Uh, And so – and they cover it pretty prominently. They put it – they give it a good spot online. But uh, it's not being touched by anyone else. For the most part, I think Wired may have finally done something on it. but and, and Charlie did something basically debunking one of O'Keefe's videos a couple of days ago. Yeah, and I think that that's, I mean, it's funny. There's this difficulty in responding to something like an O'Keefe video because, you know, you have, what was interesting about this, the most recent one, which said that there's a, had an engineer saying that there's a team of hundreds of people that can read your DMs and look at, you know, all of your sultry, sexy, nude, Texts or whatever. Um, Because that's where you send those. Right, or Twitter DM, of course. Um, And, you know, that was something that I I felt as someone who covers the platforms and technology. Like, if that's not true, Twitter needs to respond to this. But then there's sort of that whole back and forth of, you know, if this is only in this one contained sphere, like, do you really want to legitimize it by, you know, having... Twitter go on the record and 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 you know, sort of give it more attention. There's sympathy for the, the 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 Twitter folks and the the platform folks, right? If how many of these stories do you want to respond to? Exactly, it's 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 really it's difficult to to figure that out. And in this case, I think what's fascinating is I chose to write about it and and try to get you know Twitter to comment on it because tons of people from Silicon Valley are sending me text messages being like. You talk to Twitter folks, is this true? Is this, you know, like people who do not consume yeah. James O'Keefe's stuff. So, like, so it is he's in. finding ways this stuff, and, and I think generally that's what happens in whatever industry. Like, I think, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post may not cover, you know, whatever conspiracy theory, but people in Washington are hearing about it, you know, especially because Twitter is this, you know, portal to that world. Um, it's, but yeah, he, he, that's that's really one of one of the main stories, and he's found his savvy is being able to figure out how to draw. You know, I'm sure it's the Twitter stuff is probably like three interviews that were a total of 20 minutes, and he's finding a way to make a week long media cycle out of it. And he does have still powerful allies like Rush Limbaugh, um, powerful ally Mark Levin, powerful ally. These guys reach millions of people. Um, when Sean Hannity, you know, tweets out a link, it's still. Getting a lot of uh, it's still putting it into the ecosystem, uh, and then you know when Fox News is an online story on it, and you know they, sure they say Twitter denies it, still it still gets out there. So there's still a lot of people consuming his content. It's just interesting that it's primarily from this right wing media sphere versus anyone like who watches you know the network news or MSNBC or CNN or reads reads the Times. They have probably no idea. What did the right wingest sphere think of the Michael Wolf book? Did that land there? I mean, the president was tweeting about it, so it had they had to be aware of it. From what I saw, I mean, it was 
for them. And, and again, you basically you have the you know the mainstream media and the far right or pro Trump or whatever we want to call it media, like is basically like a you know like a Rorschach test. It was, you saw whatever you wanted to see in that book. For the far right media, it was proof that you know because Michael Wolff's reporting methods and you know um, liberties with the truth or whatever you know um, were in question and, and being talked about in mainstream media circles. It was validation for the right that this is what hap- this is what all reporters do. They come in, they spend a lot of time with you, they don't uh, represent themselves you. properly, and then they just sort of like take in everything, get a feeling, and then write on the feeling rather than, you know, the actual story. So they come in with this bias. So I, that was really the main takeaway from that book was like, here is all the proof Whereas you if you need. were a Trump critic or on the left, you, every single Michael Wolf anecdote you took as gospel and then shared. You had a great Facebook, a great piece about this. Um, sort of the, what was the way you described it? Sort of the ultimate, you made, you made a parallel to Facebook on this. Said, oh, yeah. Was, I mean, basically, the Wolf book is like a, a hyper-partisan Facebook post in book form. It's, you know, it's like takes this like, again, kernel of truth. Like uh, this is why O'Keefe does really well on the internet. It's a kernel of truth wrapped around, you know, a real perspective, biased thing, thing perspective. A you want to be true. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you give people, you know, the ability to share that and make that part of their identity. And that's really what, what the book was. Do we do we speaking of Facebook and we'll leave it there? Do we think that the changes they announced last week and the, they signaled this is very important to them? They made multiple blog posts about it, gave the New York Times a bunch of access, and kept saying this is very important. We're changing the way Facebook's going to work. Um, we'll sort of see if, if an average user can, can tell. Do you think that is going to have a real effect on, on the way the folks you cover um, distribute their message on social media? I, I think most of the stuff I see, at least, is usually on Twitter. Um, it might have an effect on the traffic of some of these websites like uh-huh. Breitbart or, um, you know, the Gateway Pundit, which was relying, I think, heavily often on Facebook traffic. So we'll see. But that's going to affect a lot of other publishers as well. So it'll be see, interesting to see how this all plays out for really everyone. Yeah, I, I think like the the big hyperpartisan conservative and, you know, very liberal pages are going to be hit much harder than like a mainstream publisher and I think because they rely so much, like Oliver said, on Facebook for you know to to monetize, I think that's going to be a, a big thing. But what I'm most interested in to see is these hyperpartisan sites sort of really kind of invented and were the best at gaming the system. And there are, and you know, sort of the the shistiest group is always the ones who find the next workaround. And so if it's you know if Facebook's new thing for promoting posts is the engagement that you get in the comments of something. Right. Like, is there going to be a right-wing media ecosystem that, you know, basically pays people to comment on their articles? And, like, I think we're going to see, like, this isn't going to be the end of that kind of There's always a workaround. Right. And there's been a talk about this from Facebook for a long time of getting rid of clickbait and stuff, and I still happen to see it on my feed all the time. So we'll we'll see what happens, but, you know. You guys have an incredibly toxic feed. That's that's how you do your job. Oh yeah, it's hell. <laughs> I was I was saying to someone like I took like a couple of days off and didn't have an internet connection for, like right around the, the holidays, and everyone else was doing the same thing. 
and we were all just like better, happier people. Yeah. Like you could really tell the difference. Yeah. And then everyone else went back and was like, I pruned my feet of these people I didn't like. New year, new me, new social media and strategy. You just jumped right back and into like, the, the I feel, and I, you probably feel this way, Oliver. Like I literally can't. Like it's it's the actual way that I do my. Yeah, job. I told you guys last time that I'd taken a, a Twitter break or I'd taken it off my phone. You both looked well, it's at me just like so I'd, angry, I'd tired. There was actually a, a really good story by Eve Pazer in Vice the other day um, where she wrote that Trump is making us all like him, and everyone's just so angry online, and it it's hard. It feels like it could be coming from the top. I'm going to go eat two Big Macs and two chocolate shakes and, and rage two tweet. filet of fish and, <laughs> and have a rage tweet in my underwear while I watch Fox News. You guys go about your business. Thanks for coming by. We'll have you back. We want to come back again this year? We'll talk about the election. Yeah. yeah. Deal. Okay. Thanks, guys. Take Thank care. Thank you. Thanks again, Oliver and Charlie. You guys are great. Love having you. Thanks again to Jay Rosen. Since we're saying things again, I also want to tell you about Code Media. It's a live version of this podcast. Except it's in California. Come see us February 12th and 13th. You can learn more at recode.net slash events. Whether or not you're coming to Code Media, I have a request for you. Please tell someone about this show. Talk to them on Facebook. Talk to them on Twitter. You can email them. You can tell them directly in person. Um, You can email me and tell me how much you like the show, and I love hearing about that. But it's even better if you tell someone else. Thanks. Thanks to our sponsor, Simply Safe. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They help sponsors like Simply Safe sponsor this show so you can listen to it for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, my editor, and my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Thanks to everyone. Thanks to you. See you next week. Hi, this is Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. This year, I'm launching a new live event series with MSNBC and NBC News. The series will feature town hall style conversations examining the impact of technology on the many aspects of the world today, including business, politics, science, health, climate, culture, education, and more. We'll have one-on-one interviews and other discussions with a range of thought leaders from corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and venture capitalists to journalists, government officials, and academics. These will air as specials on MSNBC with additional coverage and videos available on msnbc.com and nbcnews.com, as well as on Recode and The Verge. You can attend the first event live in San Francisco, California on January 19th at noon Pacific time. I'll be talking to Google CEO Sundar Pichai and YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. For more information about how you can attend, just visit recode.net slash work. This special will air on MSNBC that night, January 19th at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. So just one more time to learn about how you can attend the taping in San Francisco live, visit recode.net slash work.